If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew 26 today. All right, enough of the pleasantries. Sit down and open your Bibles. It's time to get down to business. Hey, uh, today is the first Sunday of the month. Does everybody know what the first Sunday of the month means? Communion. communion. Awesome. So we have communion set, and so normally we do communion during worship, but today we happen to be in Matthew 26, and so we're going to do communion at the end of the message, and we're going to invite you guys up as a church family um, as soon as uh, the message is over to, to come up and take communion and go back to your seat and spend one song um, spending time with God. You know, and, and kind of the idea is in a crowded room to, to get alone with God, to isolate yourself and maybe with your, your spouse or somebody that you've gathered with. But a, after when you come up, we'll have you come up, take the cup and the bread back to your seat, and then um, you can sit down. And we'll just encourage you during that last song to spend some time with God. One of the things that the Bible says about communion, now we talk about, um, you know, the Old Testament was full of rituals and and ceremonies and things that the Jews did according to the law of Moses. Now, now Jesus completed, fulfilled the law of Moses. And so a lot of the Old Testament um, things that, that they did rightfully so in the Old Testament, we don't do in the New Testament. We don't do um, as the bride of Christ, as the church in um, post-resurrection, after Jesus came, died on a cross. But there's a few things that we carried over or that God instituted and kept in the New Testament, one of them is baby dedication, and you guys saw we, we've done actually lots of baby dedications here the last couple of weeks and months, and um, now we do we have baptism, and that's something we do in the New Testament, and communion is one of those things that we carry over from the Old Testament, and, and Jesus said that we should do it in remembrance of him, and then the Apostle Paul said he was teaching the church in Corinthians, and the church in Corinthians, they were receiving communion like we're going to do today. And they were messing it all up. It really wasn't the heart of God. It wasn't the way that God prescribed it. And so Paul came in, and in a gentle way or in a nice way, he said, hey, you're not doing communion right. Let me, let me teach you. Let me show you what God's heart or intention is for communion. And Paul just laid out a few things. Number one, he said, do it in remembrance of me. He didn't say how, how the Bible never tells us how often we as a New Testament church should receive communion. It just says as often as you do do it, do it in remembrance of me. So we do it once a month on Sundays, once a month on Wednesdays, sometimes a little more often on Wednesday nights. Um, And then Paul, so it's a time of remembering the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Because Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. And then Paul said, the second thing he wants you to do, that God's heart for us in communion, is is a time of reflection. Get out a mirror, and and between you and God, spend some time as you receive communion, taking his body, which represents, the bread, which represents his body broken for us, beaten brutally and 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 receive that do it in remembrance of him take the cup which represents his blood that was shed for us do it in remembrance of him the the the, and then um, paul said to just reflect to look in the mirror ask the holy spirit if there's something in your heart when david sinned with bathsheba he came to god and he said god see if there's any uncleanliness in my heart god check my heart i want to be right with you oh god and, and David prayed a prayer of God of repentance and asking God to, to, to heal him and check him. And that's the thing we want to do today in communion. So we're in Matthew 26 today. So much to cover in this chapter. We've been down um, for the last, I don't know how long now, three, four weeks, five weeks we spent in Matthew 24 and 25 because it was all about biblical prophecy and end times and things that were, we had to spend some time going through. But now um, the Olivet Discourse is over. 
And and Jesus is going to leave the Mount of Olives in, in Matthew 26. And it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders and the people assembled in the place of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So Jesus tells them in verse 2, you know that after two days, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Does anybody speak Chinese in here? I think we might need an interpreter. Um, was, was this Chinese when Jesus told his disciples, in two days, the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified? Can you all understand that? Does that do we need a Chinese interpreter or some biblical scholar to help us understand what that meant? But for some reason, Jesus had told the disciples throughout his ministry that he came to die. But, but the Old Testament concept of what a Messiah would do, of what the Jewish Messiah would fulfill in the Old Testament, they just didn't have it in their minds that Messiah would be defeated, that Messiah would die. They, their understanding of a Messiah was a ruling, reigning king. Their idea was somebody who was going to come in, and when he came in, he was finally going to overthrow the yoke of the Roman bondage upon Israel, that he was going to restore to them again the, the, the glory of, of the God of Israel, and that he was going to set up a kingdom, and he was going to rule and reign. Now, the truth about Messiah is that he is going to set up a kingdom and rule and reign, but there's two, two versions or two levels of prophecy in the Old Testament, both true, but the Jews only followed one and couldn't quite follow the other but the bible talks about when messiah came the first time he would come as a lamb he would be led to the slaughter that that he would be beaten that he would be crucified and then it talked about a messiah who would come as a king who would rule and reign and jesus is both lion and lamb and the first time jesus came he came as a lamb who was slain and when john the baptist saw jesus for the first time what did john the baptist say of jesus He said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, being the Lamb of God, came the first time to die on a cross. And Jesus is coming back. And as we read in the book of Revelation, by the time we get to chapter 21, that when Jesus comes back, it's not as a lamb anymore. He's going to come back as a king of kings and a lord of lords. He's going to come back on a white horse with armies. Amen. And and, and the word of God is going to proceed out of his mouth and defeat the armies of Antichrist. But it's that picture of jesus that the disciples had formed in their mind of what messiah would be so as many times as jesus told them point blank i'm going to die they just missed it and here again jesus tells them and and they're gonna miss it and then in verse four it says and plotted they plotted the jews plotted to take jesus by trickery and kill him but they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among these people and when jesus was in bethany at the house of simon the leper A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. You know, we we look over verse 6 and we just kind of keep reading. Any of you guys this year so far, have you guys gotten like the the black death of sickness? Anybody been really sick this year? A couple of you? Brian's like, yeah, I got it today. (laughs) Come by, I'll breathe on you. Um, So let me ask you this. When you were really, 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 really sick, did did you call your friends over and say, hey, come over to my house for dinner? No? Well, that wasn't the time where you invited everybody over to have dinner at your house when you just really were sick with a black death. Well, here Jesus goes to the house of this leper, Simon the leper, and they're there for dinner. What do you think that was like? Do you think the leper that was hosting him was like, 
he'd bring the food out and then everybody would back up until the leper got back and then they could go and, and get in. I mean, you know, obviously leprosy was highly contagious and you couldn't be anywhere near a leper. And Jesus goes to the house of this leper for dinner. So obviously this guy was a leper when Jesus got there, but he wasn't a leper for long because Jesus had to have touched him and healed him, and healed him and touched him of his leprosy. And it's exactly what Jesus does is Jesus comes into every one of our lives. He, he touches areas of our lives and he cleanses us from our leprosy. So Jesus had to heal. Amen. Jesus had to heal the leper, but he's there in the leper's house. And a woman came. Now, this gospel doesn't tell us who the woman is, but the other gospels tell us that this is none other than Mary. Mary had a sister. What was Mary's sister name? Martha. And it says that Mary brought a flask of very, very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. So here comes Mary, who's known in the Bible as a worshiper of God. Everybody say worshiper. We're going to talk a little bit about from the life of Mary, the, the role and the, the function of worship for us as Christ followers, for us as Christians. So the last time that we see Mary, we see Mary and Martha, and they're having the dinner at their house this time. Now, these two women, Mary and Martha, I want to tell you something about them. Spent a lot of time with Jesus. The entire three years that Jesus was here, we, we know of him spending time with the 12 disciples. But in every story, in every case, and all the way along the way for that three years, Mary and Martha were there. Mary and Martha would have traveled with Jesus. They would have spent time with him and the disciples. They would have ministered to their needs when it was necessary. They would have taken care of, of Jesus and the disciples. And all the way through this three years, we see Mary and Martha who spent um, the entire time with Jesus. They were there at the tomb when Jesus, when Jesus died. They were there at, the, at Calvary when Jesus died. They were there at the tomb when he rose again. And the last time we see Mary and Martha, they're actually at their house, and, and Martha is in the kitchen cooking like Martha Stewart, like she belongs, and, and Mary is, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him, spending time at the feet of Jesus in worship. And Martha comes out of the kitchen, and she gets upset, and she says, Jesus, tell my sister to get off her lazy butt and come in the kitchen and help me with these dishes. And Jesus says, that was my version, but that's basically what she said, tell my Tell my sister to get in here and help me with the, with the duties, with the, the things that need to be done to minister to the needs of you and the disciples. And Jesus says to Martha that you worry about many things, Martha, but Mary has chosen the better place. And Jesus gives honor to the decision that Mary made to sit at his feet and be a worshiper. Instead of being busy doing the things of, of, of ministry, of life, of things that had to be done, doing, 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 doing. That first what was necessary and what was valuable and what was important was that Jesus didn't tell Mary, okay, Mary, um, you're being lazy. It's, it's time now to get up and go help your sister in the kitchen. He actually said, Martha, relax, because um, Mary has chosen the better place. And he allowed Mary to stay and worship at his feet. And now Jesus is, as we know in our story, he's hours away from dying on a cross. Jesus is going to um, finish, he finishes the, the Olivet Discourse, he preaches in Matthew 24 and 25 about what's going to happen at the end of days. He enters this house, he, he hangs out with his group, and he's going to leave here, and he's going to tell the disciples to go prepare the Last Supper. The Last Supper is going to happen in the evening. He's going to leave the room where the disciples gathered, we commonly call the upper room, and he's going to walk back across the, the old city of Jerusalem, and he's going to come from the east side, and he's going to travel west until he gets 
to the Kidron Valley. He's going to go down the Kidron Valley on the Temple Mount side, back up the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives side, and he's going to enter a garden called Gethsemane. And it's in this garden that he's going to sweat great, great drops of blood. The Roman soldiers are going to show up late same night and arrest him. And they're going to take him back to the house of Pilate. And they're going to take him to the house of Caiaphas. And they're going to begin an illegal trial that's going to begin sometime around midnight. And by 9 o'clock the next morning, they will have convicted him, scourged him, beat him. And he will be hanging on a cross by 9 a.m. the next morning. So Jesus is hours away from hanging on a cross. And Mary here understands something, and she takes this very costly oil, and she dumps it on Jesus' head. Oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We use anointing oil here at church because the Bible tells us to, and so if you come up for prayer and you tell me that you've been sick and that you're asking for healing, because Timothy tells us, Paul tells Timothy in the, in the book of Timothy to anoint with oil and lay hands on and pray for those that are sick, have the elders lay hands on and pray for those that are sick among you. So we keep a little olive oil up here in this thing, and I'll make a little cross on your forehead. I won't pour it on your head like Mary did. Um, But we do that in obedience to the Word of God because it's a representation of the Holy Spirit. And here Mary anoints Jesus with oil. Now also anointing somebody who was going to die was very customary. Jews don't wait. They don't embalm. We were in Israel when Ariel Sharon died. Ariel Sharon died like on a Friday at 8 a.m., 8 p.m. And by 9 o'clock the next morning, they were having his funeral. And so the funeral of Ariel Sharon, and that's the way it is in Israel. Somebody dies at 8 p.m. on a Friday night. Saturday by 9 a.m., they're putting him in the grave. They don't wait, and, and, and they, they, they don't embalm. And so it was customary, even in Jesus' day, to, to, to cover a body with spices and creams and oils. And so she, she's pouring this oil of worship over Jesus' head, and she's wiping, the Bible tells us, with her hair, as she's worshiping Jesus. Now the grumpy disciples show up and they say um, in verse 8, but when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Uh-oh. Jesus says she did it for his burial. Now, number one, the Bible doesn't tell us here who the disciple specifically was that was complaining. We know that it was Judas. The other Gospels tell us. They pull the, they pull the covers on him. And, and Judas was the one that was in charge of the money. And so John tells us that it was because Judas was basically stealing the money that he, he wanted this to go into the coffers. Now, he said, what a waste. But, but what's ironic is that Judas's life becomes the biggest waste in human's history. Judas, actually, his name is very, very good. The name Judas means praise or worship. Judas is, um, how many of us name our kids Judas? Nobody? It's a waste. It's been wasted. It's a beautiful name like the, na- like the life of Judas that was wasted. And Judas, who... Um, was the only one, Iscariot, Judas Iscariot from Iscaria. Iscaria was an area in southern Israel. He was actually the only one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called from the southern region of Israel. Most of them came from the Galilee region. The Galilee region was like, in, uh, was like Grantsville. And, and the, southern, the southern region of Israel would be like New York City. It would be like the Bostonians. It would be like the big city, uptown, um, sophisticated people. 
And no doubt Judas Iscariot was a very sharp individual, probably educated, college educated. He, um, he was good with numbers and money. And so it just made sense that when, when they needed a treasurer to be in charge of the money and the finances and make decisions, they chose Judas Iscariot. He was a learned man. It was probably one of the reasons where Judas Iscariot went, went sideways. You, you add his understanding of what Messiah would be from the Old Testament and, and, and his desire probably to be great and sophisticated and be in charge of the money. And so he just figured in his mind that when Jesus, our Messiah, finally overthrows the Roman government and establishes his kingdom, that I'll be great and I'll be a ruler and I will, I will have possessions and I'll be in charge of the treasury of the nation. And when, when he could realize that things weren't going the way that he thought they would go, somewhere along the way, Jesus or Judas makes a decision to betray Jesus. Now, Judas Iscariot's life, again, becomes an absolute total waste. The Bible tells us that we're not the judge of anybody's salvation. And so we, we're, we don't know. You know, I, I tease, uh, and, and theologically, I know this is not correct, and I, and I got to be careful, but um, when... Uh, Jerry Garcia passed away. He was the lead singer of the Grateful Dead who led an LSD um, revolution through the 60s and 70s of people that traveled with the Grateful Dead and got high and had free love and sex. And the Grateful Dead was this hippie band that just, and, and they had this cult following. When Jerry Garcia died, I tweeted, uh, he's not so gratefully dead anymore. Now, um, whether, you know, and I said that assuming that he didn't go to heaven, but again, that's not theologically correct. I shouldn't say that. I can't say that because I don't know if I would have said that when the thief on the cross died and I knew the guy and I knew what a creep he was, an insurrectionist, a murderer, and all of society would have agreed that the thief on the cross should have been on that cross. And if we would have been there the day that he died, we would have said it's, it's not, he's not so gratefully dead, but we'd have been wrong, right? Because the thief on the cross made a deathbed confession and he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the Bible says we just don't know. It just says be careful as Christians. That's one of the areas in the, and the world gets it twisted, this whole do not judge thing. You have to judge. The Bible doesn't tell you as a Christian not to judge. It says not to have unrighteous judgment. Not to look down your nose at people. And there's a type of judgment. But we all make judgments in life. It's a part of life. But one of the areas that we're told biblically not to make judgment is on salvation. Because it's not the authority. So, but I can tell you this. I said all that to say the Bible is clear that one, one of the characters in the Bible went to hell. And that's Judas Iscariot. One of only two people in all of human history that um, the devil himself will enter personally. Now, we see where Jesus is constantly throughout the Gospels, he's casting out demons of folks. But only in one case is it Satan himself, who, who the, the task is so big that he wants to make sure it's done right, that Satan himself does the job. And he, he himself enters Judas Iscariot, and after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Judas goes out, and the Bible says he, he hangs himself. He hung himself on a tree. And then, and then another place in the gospel, it says that, that the tree branch broke and he rolled down the side of the hill and, and that the rocks cut him and that his entrails came out. That was the end of Judas Iscariot, was suicide. And as Satan had a hold of him and was in him. The other person, yet future, that Satan himself will enter, who's that? The Antichrist. The Bible says that Antichrist himself will be filled um, by Satan. So here we have... Judas, and we're going to see where God is going to, and I think it's powerful and important for us to note as we go through this section, is that all the way through this, Jesus knows what Judas is going to do, and God and Jesus specifically gives 
Judas a place of honor. He's continually giving Judas an opportunity to repent, to get right, to not have to do it. Because again, we, we, we might think, oh, well, God needed a bad guy in the story. So Judas just didn't have a choice. And, and how, is it, how is God moral if God needed a bad guy? So he raises up Judas, knowing what Judas is going to do, puts it in his heart to betray Jesus. And then when he betrays Jesus, God just sends him to hell for the rest of eternity. That's immoral. But that's not what happened. And just like you and I, Judas had a choice. And we'll see all the way through the story that, that, God was, that Jesus was calling out, was giving Judas opportunity to repent, to change. And you say, well, what, what would have happened? What if Judas didn't betray Jesus? Didn't he need somebody to betray him? Listen, the sovereignty of God would have worked itself out. Prophecies of God would have absolutely worked themselves out. And if Judas made a choice to repent and turn and not betray Jesus, the story would have just took a different twist. Judas didn't have to be the one, but he chose to be the one. And Jesus loved him all the way through it, all the way to the end. You know what Jesus is about to do? He's about to wash the disciples' feet. He's about to get on his knees and gird himself like a servant and get a basin, and he's going to wash all 12 of the disciples' feet. And you know who one of the 12 would have been? Judas, who was about to betray him. And the place of table, as they sat around at the Last Supper, we know that John, the, the, the beloved disciple, sat on the right side of Jesus. He was at the bosom of Jesus. The place of honor in a, in a table is at the left side of the, of the guest of honor. And so they would have not sat around tables like we do. They would have sat, they would have reclined on the ground around a thing they called a triclinium, which you kind of sit on one, you lay down on one, one elbow and you use your other hand and you kind of lay around the table. And so Judas would have been as close to Jesus in a place of honor that Jesus chose for him because Jesus said, whoever dips his hand in the bowl with me, so they would have shared salsa bowls around the table or oil or whatever it was. And Judas and Jesus would have shared the same bowl and they put their hand in at the same time. And that was a clue and a sign that Jesus said, whoever dips his hand in the bowl with me will be the one. So Judas knew. And, and Jesus, in this way, he also kept it from the other disciples. Anybody getting to know Peter yet? What do you think, it, how, how would it have went down if Jesus sat around the table with the 12 and he said, hey, yeah, Judas is about to betray me, guys. Judas wouldn't have made it out of that room. Peter would have had him hacked up before, before hors d'oeuvres were over. You know, Peter was, was quick to pull that sword and, and, and start swinging it around. So, um, but Jesus protected him in that and didn't, you know, didn't, didn't do that. All right, so we, we uh, let's look, let's, let me draw your attention to um, verse 10, because this is really what I want to talk about as we move on here. We got on to Judas a little bit, which is the next section, but that's okay. Um, I, I want to finish the last one. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. And then in verse 12, he says, for in pouring the fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. So listen, the, the idea that, that the Bible is full of worship. Now, what's interesting, our, our, our Hebrew um, teacher in, in college, in Bible college, he says that there's, there's 75 different facets for the Hebrew word worship, which is so fascinating that when we think of worship, if I said to you, hey, we're going to worship, um, what, what comes to mind? What, what do you think of if, if we use the term here in church, in our culture, it's time to worship? We, we, we oftentimes go to singing. And that's one of the 75 facets of worship for those of us as a believer. But really, worship in itself is, is so broad. Worship is, um, music is one of the avenues that we use. 
But even, even as we go, the early church was, a built, was built around a few pillars that God gave in Acts 2.42. Fellowship, prayer, breaking bread, the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, same thing. So when, when you come to church and you love people next to you, you hug people, you welcome people, that's an act of worship. It's called fellowship. When you give, when we give of our tithes and offerings, it's an act of worship. When, when we worship in song, it's an act of worship. When we read and study the Bible and ask God's Holy Spirit to minister to our lives, that's an act of worship. So the things that we do in church, everything we do, when I pray, when Pat got up and prayed, when, when we're going to pray at the end, when we're going to receive communion, every one of those things is an act of worship. But, but music is, is a way that, that is biblical. Listen, this is what I want to tell us. You know what was new to Utah when I got here in this culture? Now, I came from a big Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is a worldwide organization of non-denominational churches. And they're all over Southern California. And, you know, you don't, you don't live in Southern California and don't know what Calvary Chapel is. But that's not true around the rest of the nation. And as Calvary Chapel grew, it started in the 70s. By 1994, Calvary Chapel had become the largest non-denominational evangelical church in the world. We planted churches all over the world, all over the United States. And so, um, the, well, but one of the things that was, that was culturally different here for a lot of folks that we started to meet when we got here was the idea of worship. We, we had a family, a lovely family, come and um, they said, when, when we first started as a church, we didn't have a worship band. We had a gal that came with us from California, and um, her, her husband was doing youth group, and she, she stood up here by herself and played the guitar and sang. And they came, and they're like, oh, it's kind of chill there. There's not like all this crazy loud worship music, and there's no drums, and okay, we can handle that church. Let's go there. And so they came, and then we tricked them, right? We, we added all this stuff later. And, but culturally, they just weren't used to it, you know? And, and culturally, I think sometimes, and in some denominations, we, we've come up with the idea, and, and you know what's crazy, listen, um, without preaching this too much, we, we, we like to push pause on the things that God is doing. So, for example, in music, you know, when, 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 when the organ was not, Jesus didn't play the organ, right? Jesus and the disciples didn't have an organ in the synagogue, and that's why we have an organ, and the organ is the only right um, anointed instrument. But at some point in history, it was really radical. Maybe it was the 1400s, 1500s. And some radical church brought this big pipe organ in church, and someone began to bang on it as we worshiped God. And people thought, I won't go to that holy rock and roll church. And then over time, the organ has become, because we pushed pause at that point, and the organ has become the holy right only instrument that God allows in churches. And that idea is not, you know, Jesus said that, that you, you, you miss the heart of God for the traditions of men. And I tell people all the time, you know what I want for my worship, for our worship here? I want a people that are singing to God. And, and I don't care if we use, and listen, if we do something that's not prescribed by the Bible, let's identify it and let's get rid of it because that's not what I'm into. What I'm into is doing what God wants us to do, and I mean it. And I'll change in a minute. But what I find when I read the Bible is the Bible does lay out a prescription for song. And in Psalm 150, you guys should be very familiar with this chapter. Turn with me, if you will, there real quick. This is the prescription that God lays out for worship. <laughs> it says, let all things praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him in his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the somebody. Praise him with the somebody. And praise him with the... And here goes one. Dance. How many of you guys dance when you pray? 
Praise him with stringed instruments. Okay, we got a couple of those. Praise him with flutes. And this one's cool. Praise him with what kind of symbols? Loud symbols. Praise, praise him with clashing symbols. Let everything that hath breast praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Listen, God is not interested in, God is not, um, he's not offended by the instruments that we do or don't use in worship. God is interested in the heart of his people that sing to him. And how we accomplish that, you guys, we, that can change. And the organ was, was radical in his day, and it became an instrument of worship, and, it, and it's good. And, and, and maybe the drums. And, you know, I, I had people in his church standing right here recently. You know, we, we do a thing in here where we bring the town. They sign up for baseball in here, and they use our building. So the people come in, and we get some strangers come in. And this woman came in a month ago, and she's standing here, and she's like so mad about the drums. It's just tweaking her that we have drums. And her little son is there, and she's signing him up for baseball, and 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 she and, and her, her her she tells her son, her son asks something about the drums, and she says, "Yeah, son, this is just one of those rock and roll churches." And her son looks at her, "Mom, I want to come to this church." <laughs> but she was she was so twisted about about. But listen, if God doesn't like the drums, I'll get rid of them tomorrow. I promise. I don't want them either. I'm not, I, I don't want anything that God doesn't want. That's not the point. But, but it's a tradition of man. And when the Bible says right in Psalms 150 and over and over again, praise Jesus with, with loud symbols, with crashing symbols, with stringed instruments, that the prescription of how we worship God and what instruments we use is, is irrelevant to the condition of our heart. You know, for us as a church, listen, for us as a culture and a community, this is what I want to in, in, encourage us is that you come and you use the music to connect to God. That you worship the Lord, that, that you, you know, what happens is, do, do we see in the Bible where worship is uh, a connected thing? And I'm, I'm going on and on. But look at, look at this verse real quick, um, verse 30 of chapter 26. Somebody. And when they had sung what? A hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That was Jesus and his disciples. And, and they're in this thing, and they're going to get together. And what is Jesus and his disciples going to do? They're going to sing a worship song. You want to make a fight over whether it's a hymn or not? We're not getting into that. You know, again, we can't push pause on the, on the hymns that, oh, the hymns were the greatest. Listen, the hymns came after the, the organ, and the organ was the only great thing. And then these radical hymns came in, and then they gelled out. And then, you know, and, and again, those are not what God prescribed. God prescribes a heart of worship, and he gives us freedom in the word to use whatever we need to use as long as we're, we're understanding it's not a rock concert. And if we rock out a little bit, but our hearts are rocking out to Jesus, and we're loving Jesus, and we're praising Jesus, I want to tell you this. This is my point. The Bible prescribes worship. It's for you. It's important in your life. When Mary was worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and Martha came in and said, hey, tell her to get busy. Jesus said, Mar- Martha, leave Mary alone. She's chosen the better place. When the disciples came in and said, this oil of worship and anointment, as she sat at your feet and she used her hair to wash your feet and anoint you with oil, and the disciples said, that was a waste, Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. Do you know that Jesus said, she's done a good thing for my burial? Now, now all the disciples had no idea that Jesus was going to die on a cross and be buried, but Mary understood. How did Mary understand and anoint Jesus for burial? He just got through telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on a cross right over their head. But for Mary, it didn't go over her head. She's a woman and she listens. Yeah, that's all right. Men, 
the men, the men had things they needed to kill and accomplish and do. I didn't have time for that, you know. We had to be doing something important. But I would say that, that Mary, as a worshiper, she received that, that revelation in worship. God speaks to you as you worship. God ministers and reveals things to you. When you, when you set aside the, the, you know, remember that old commercial, Calgon, take me away. You know that idea where you get in the Calgon bath and it just takes you to some other place. That's what worship kind of does. It just takes you to a place of connection and communion with God. It's prescribed by God. It's biblical. Jesus did it. He, he encouraged it. He, he protected it. We are a people of worshiper. The great theologian Bob Dylan one time said that we all worship someone. Remember that line in one of the Bob Dylan songs? We all worship someone at some time. And Bob Dylan understood what, what, that we all are people who worship. And if you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship the God of heaven, in your life you're going to find things to worship. So you might as well worship the God of heaven who, who, who has a heaven to send you to and a heaven to bring you to and a kingdom that he's created for you and the God of, of heaven. And so, um, but worship again is prescribed. Mary here was a worshiper. Jesus loved it. And in that, um, Jesus brings revelation. The other thing that happens, listen, you're going to be like what you worship. You guys worship certain secular music, certain bands. You know, it's a form of worship and you have certain things in your life that, you know, you pour into your heart and your life and it's something that's just a part of you and who you are. You're going to become like that. When, when Mary anointed the, 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 the head of Jesus and washed his feet with her hair, that same smell and fragrance that Jesus had, Mary would have also had the same fragrance. Mary would have taken on the fragrance of Jesus. And we take on the fragrance of the things that we put in our life. We take on the fragrance of the things that we worship. And that, that, without having taken time out to explain that, you know, you, it's just true. Okay, you just have to trust me on that one. And we'll unpack it on another day. But, but, but what you put into your life, you know, the, the, how's the old adage go? You are what you eat. You know, it's kind of like this idea. Now, I know that's lame, but the, the idea is, is definitely the things that you put into your life, they affect you. And you don't tell me, oh, I listen to this, I watch that, I do this, but it doesn't affect my life. It absolutely affects your life. You take on the fragrance of the things that your life. So, so spend time with Jesus, and you'll be more like Jesus. Spend time worshiping and at his feet, and you'll receive revelation from Jesus, as Mary did. Um, all right, and then... Um, we already covered 14 through 16, talking about Judas. And then in verse 17 is Jesus is going to institute the Passover. Let's pick it up in verse 26. And it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the for the remission of sins. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until now, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out onto Mount of Olives. So Jesus gathers with the disciples. The part that I skipped over is Jesus preparing for the Last Supper. He told the disciples to go and find a man um, in the city who was carrying a pitcher of water and say to the man that, that the Lord has need of your house and, and that the guy would have been a friend of Jesus that he had pre-set up to, to prepare the Last Supper. We commonly call the place where Jesus and his disciples gathered um, the upper room. And it would have been some dining room, some area, some living room upstairs 
who was a friend of Jesus, who, who prepared and had an area, a, a big enough room that the disciples and those close followers of Jesus, Mary and Martha and the other gals, and maybe some of the people that were, that would, that were close to Jesus could meet and celebrate the Last Supper. That place of the upper room, again, it's, it's on the east side of, of the old city or right outside the old city of Jerusalem. And, um, you know, you can look at a map. You can see to this day when we go to Israel and we visit you. Um, this last trip, actually, I don't think we had time to go to the actual place, but it's there, the house, the place where Jesus had the Last Supper. And you see this little um, area that he traversed back and forth in those last 48 hours of his life. And we talked about as he would have um, left the upper room, he would have had to come back across the temple, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane on the other side. But Jesus was there, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, what's, what's interesting for this particular time in human history is that this night of the Last Supper, and I teach this often, so I'm going to get on to the Garden of Gethsemane because there's some things I want to go through on that. But just so you know, or if you're new, the, the, this was the first time in human history that the Passover was celebrated and instituted in a new way. Because for thousands of years, and, and still to this day in Israel, Orthodox Jews celebrate the Passover the same way that Moses did and the same way that it was, it was prescribed. But Jesus changes it on this day when he institutes the Lord's Supper. The Passover would have been nothing new. It would have been nothing. It would have been totally familiar and common, except for you get to the point in the, in the, in the Passover where you do it in remembrance of Moses. And Jesus gets to this faithful point and he says, do this in remembrance of. And I'm sure Big Mouth Peter would have said, we know Jesus, Moses. And Peter said, and Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Because that lamb that, that Moses slaughtered and the blood that covered the doorpost that caused the angel of death to, to pass over the house in, in Egypt, that was a representation of the Lamb of God that would come and take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And, and so this was new this night. Now, just again quickly, you know, there, there's a there's a... A doctrine out there that is just bad. It just says that the this is called transubstantiation, that the blood and the cracker actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. That's just not biblical. It's not true. It's a cracker. The juice is on sale at Walmart. The crackers that we got, I don't know why, but they have a little garlic taste to them. And normally that's not the case, but I don't know. Carl got some strange crackers. I don't know. He's, you guys got to talk to Carl about that, but... We just order matzos. We try to order them from the Jewish, you know, deli, and they're just flat crackers, and there's nothing special to them. But but it's it's what happens in your heart that's special. Okay, it's just like the worship. The music is what it is, but it's the it's the condition of your heart that makes it special. And 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 as we worship Jesus, we 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 do it in remembrance of Him, and we take the blood that the the, the juice that represents His blood that was shed for us. You know, in, in, the, um, in Israel, in a lot of places, they still use real fermented wine in, in communion. And, um, you know, we don't, but the, people often point out, and I want you to, let me draw your attention real quick to verse 29 of Matthew 26. People will say, oh, well, Jesus drank wine, and Jesus turned water into wine. And, you know, I, 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 you can't argue with that. That's, Jesus made fermented wine. You just can't argue with it. You know, some people want to say, oh, well, it wasn't fermented, and, well, that's, that's even a bigger miracle then because the people that drank it in John chapter 2 got drunk. So they got drunk on non-fermented wine that Jesus made. 
That's a big miracle. So he made fermented wine. He, they, they used it in communion. They still do in Israel today. They obviously didn't abuse it. The Bible says, do not get drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Okay, very clear in the Bible. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, it's sin if you're getting drunk. But for those of you that use the excuse that Jesus made water into wine, that Jesus drank wine, I want to draw your attention to verse 29 because you don't have that excuse anymore because he might have, but Jesus said what in verse 29? I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's house. So Jesus said, I'm going to take a 2,000 year break from drinking the wine and so should you. Amen. All right, let's move on. But just don't use Jesus as your excuse because he said he's going to take a break. And then let's look at verse um, 36. It says in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. So the word Gethsemane is interesting. You know, Jesus would have spoke um, Aramaic. And, and, and a lot of the Bible is, um, is, is, is written in Greek, right? We have the, the Koine Greek was a common language of Jesus' day. No doubt Jesus would have also spake, spoke Koine Greek. Hebrew, but I, I think the common language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic. So we find in the Bible um, from time to time untranslated Aramaic words, because even when we get some of the Greek, it's, a, it's an Aramaic word that was translated into the Greek. So this word Gethsemane, to this day when you go to Israel, um, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's just an Aramaic word that's untranslated into the Greek, and it means um, olive press, very simply olive press. Another one, for example, remember when Jesus raised the little girl and he said that kind of weird sentence and then the little girl came out? But we, we get it recorded in the Aramaic and it's, the, the sentence was Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. And she came up, but again, untranslated Aramaic, um, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani is what Jesus is going to say on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we will find that in the Bible, especially a lot around um, the, the, the death of Jesus. So he's there in the garden of Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Somebody say exceedingly sorrowful. Okay, you got to catch that. Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful. Can the Bible exaggerate? No. No, the Bible cannot exaggerate. When we read these terms, they're not exaggerations. When God wrote them, he meant them. And so the, when, when they add a, a great emphasis on the term sorrowful, Jesus in the condition in the Garden of Gethsemane is, is the only place in the life of Jesus where we get these kind of adjectives to describe the condition that Jesus was in in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when the Bible says he was exceedingly sorrowful, it's actually going to add some commentary to that in a minute. Jesus was exceedingly sorrowful. He, he knew what he was about to face. Jesus was about to face the worst physical beating. The Bible says that any human being will ever face from Adam and Eve to the end of the book of Revelation. In all of human history, one person in the flesh will receive the worst torturous beating, and it was Jesus. For our healing. Thank you. Get some good commentary coming down. Thank you. Amen. 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 So Jesus was going to receive, but in the flesh, nobody, and I don't care how bad, I think, I don't know, the one, I always think of like 007, and it was uh, Craig, the Craig dude when he played 007. You guys remember that torture scene? <laughs> this is good church stuff. They put him in a chair. You know what he remembers? 
<laughs> so like, yeah, like that was torture, right? But nothing, and I don't care how bad of something you've seen in the movie or, or make-believe, the type of, of physical beating that Jesus would receive and survive is unparalleled in human history. So Jesus is about to face this, the scourging. They would put a bag on his head and punch him in the face. And the reason why they put a bag on his head is because when your body can't flinch or react or see a blow coming, you take the full brunt of it. Even if you see it last second and your, 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 your body just needs a quick, really quick nanosecond to react, to clinch, to prepare for a blow, and it's still going to hurt, but, it's, but when you don't see it coming is when it's devastating. And so they would put a bag on his head and they'd begin to punch him in the face. They would, they would weave a crown of thorns and place it upon his head. And it says they took their clubs and they, they used them to fashion it into place so these spikes would have gone into his head. They, they ripped his beard from his face and they spit on him. They stripped him naked and they, they, they put his, his hands over his head. And two Roman soldiers would have had to take turns because of the physical um, exertion it would have caused them to whip him across his back with a cat of nine tails 39 times. They put a cross upon his back after all of these beatings and they made him carry it from the place where they, where they gave him the, the, the 39 lashes in a, ro- place, in a Roman um, um, place there in the Temple Mount called the Praetorium. And from the Praetorium to the place of Calvary where they would crucify him, they made him carry this beam and the, the road is famously called the Via Dolorosa. It's the road from the Praetorium where they beat him to the place of Calvary. And they made Jesus carry this cross um, down the Via Dolorosa. It's very possible that Jesus wouldn't have carried the full cross, just the cross beam, and the other part was already waiting for him at Calvary. But nonetheless, we know as Jesus made his way down the Via Dolorosa after receiving this beating, that he would fall and he would, he would collapse under the weight of this cross. And the Bible tells us the Roman soldiers would hit him, and they would kick him, and they would hit him with the back of their spears, and they would yell at him, Get up! Get up! And they would hit him, and he would get up, and with everything he had, he, he would try to just continue to walk down the Via Dolorosa with every little bit of energy, he kept continued to take steps for you and I on the way to Calvary. And finally, he fell under the weight of the cross. And the Roman soldiers realized no matter how many more times we beat him, we kick him, we hit him, he doesn't physically have enough strength to take one more step. And they got a guy out of the crowd, Simon the Cyrenian, to come and carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the way up to Calvary. Jesus knows that he's going to face this. And it says that he was exceedingly sorrowful as he gathered with the disciples for the last time in the Garden of Gethsemane before Judas Iscariot and the others show up. And he took with him Peter, and it says um, in verse 38, and then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. The term watch in the Bible means what? Somebody. When you see that in the Bible, what does it mean? It means to pray, 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 pray. Watch means to pray. Watch and pray. So watch and pray. And then, and it says he went, where were we at? 39, I'm sorry. And he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What was in that cup that Jesus asked would pass, he would, that would pass from him? It was the wrath. It was the wrath of God that was going to be poured upon in his death, the death on the cross. So what was Jesus praying? Jesus was praying that if there's any other way for the people at Tooele Springs Calvary Chapel to go to heaven, 
then, then let's go with that plan. If they can give enough, if they can just be good people, if they can serve, if they can be good and, and, and serve in their local church and feed homeless people, if there's any other way, if there's any other plan of salvation besides me having to go to the cross, then, then God, let's go with plan B. And he said, Lord, if there's any other way, please, God, can we go with that plan? And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, what, could you not watch with me for an hour? Could you not pray with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and he prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping again for their eyes were heavy. And he said to them and he left them. And he went away again, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. So he prayed the same prayer three times. Some people will say, if you keep praying the same prayer, it's because you don't got enough faith. Well, Jesus didn't have enough faith then, because he prayed the same prayer three times. And the Bible says to keep praying, keep knocking, keep asking. In the other Gospels, we get added detail to this story. And it says that Jesus began, as it were, to, to sweat great drops of blood. The, the, the scientific term is hematridosis, which means how many of you guys have ever been so perplexed, stressed in that type of condition that the blood vessels on your on your skin began to break? And that's what was happening to Jesus that day. And we could be pretty stressed out, but I don't know that any of us have ever experienced that type of hematridosis, that type of stress. It was so bad, in fact, that that as God is in heaven is watching his son Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is so fascinating, so amazing, so powerful to the story to me, that, that God, the Bible says, and you don't see this other places, God sends an angel to the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to Jesus. So, so God is in heaven. His heart is breaking. He's crying. He's, he's watching Jesus in the garden. And he tells the angels, go to my son. Go to him. Look, he's... he's, he's, he's He's broken. He's scared. He's stressed. Go to him. He's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And God has to send an angel to comfort Jesus in the garden. It it gives it gravity, right? And the whole time we have what's unfolding before us is the greatest dichotomy in all of human history, the greatest lack of of awareness and and, and ostrich head in the sand, unlack of awareness going on with the disciples who three times Jesus comes to them and says, will you guys pray with me? I'm, I'm going through something here. Will you guys pray with me? And, and, and the disciples are doing what? They're sleeping. You know, I used to try to guilt people with this passage right here, and I'd say, man, if you were in the garden, what would you be doing? Oh, I'd be praying, man. I've been praying for that hour. Well, if you'd be in the garden, can you now pray for an hour? Can you pray today for an hour for Jesus? You know, but, but the disciples, listen. They, they missed the gravity of what was happening. If they understood what was about to happen, if they had the insight that you and I have today, what would have the disciples been doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? They would have been praying. They, 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 if they would have got it, they would have saw the gravity of what was happening and, and the moment, they would have been there just like Jesus praying for him and with him, but they missed it. And Jesus, who has the greatest awareness of, of what's about to happen, and the disciples who have the least awareness. And you know what? Oftentimes, we, like the disciples, we can miss the gravity of what's happening. But we need to be a people who's praying, a people who's watching, a people who, who, who don't miss it, and we're not missing it, and we're not sleeping all the time, that we're, that we're worshiping, that we're praying. And, and as Jesus, um, you know, he, 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 
Here's the thing, and we're going to close with this. We're going to have the worship team. Let's have the worship team come on up, and we're going to get ready to receive communion. I'm going to close with this last thought. You know, for a lot of years, I, I read this story, and, and I preached that Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, that God had to send an angel to the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to Jesus because of the physical beating that he was going to face. But you know what? I, I don't believe that's true anymore. I don't believe that Jesus was looking forward to the physical beating. But I think there was something bigger that was taking place that Jesus understood. And, and I think, listen, if, if you can grasp, now pay attention. This is so important. I want you to get this this morning. And I know it's at the end and, and it's long and your butt's tired now. And your mind doesn't absorb what your butt won't handle. But, but don't miss this. Listen. Jesus understood and what Jesus was um, sweating great drops of blood, why Jesus was, was had to have an angel come to him was not because the physical beating that he was about to face. What was going to happen is we, we get later, Paul's going to comment on it and Paul's going to say, he who knew no sin became sin. Who's he that knew no sin? Jesus. How is it that Jesus, as Paul tells us, became sin? It says, he who knew no sin became sin for you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God. Who does that? Only a loving God. Only Jesus becomes sin for the purpose that you and I could become the righteousness of God. But in order for Jesus to become sin, there was going to be a moment on the cross where that was going to happen. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And theologians like to argue about what exactly happens at this moment. And I, I'm not a theologian and I'm not going to argue with you. I'll just tell you in, in the skinny that God poured out the wrath, his wrath upon his son on the cross. And there was a separation that took place because that's what the Bible says. And God separated from his son Jesus in order to pour the wrath and the sin of the world upon him so he could become sin, so that he could conquer and defeat sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. He became poor so that we could become rich, the Bible says. And in that moment, there was a separation between the Father and the Son as God poured out his wrath. And it was that little separation that Jesus feared the most. It wasn't the physical beating. It wasn't the torture. It was a moment on the cross where he would be temporarily separated from the Father. And that scared him. And we live lives where we just don't have that fear. We don't have that fear of what could happen if we're eternally separated from God. Jesus didn't even want to be temporarily for a second separated from God. And, and we, we live our lives in ways that, that, that we live aloof. And we're the disciples that are in the Garden of Gethsemane and we're sleeping and we're missing it. And so, you know, if we could understand what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, it might motivate us, it might help us. You know, it's the love of Jesus that, that, that motivates us. It doesn't fear and all those other things don't work. But some of those things are healthy in our lives as Christians. But responding to the real love of Jesus that he showed on the cross. And having, as, as Jesus did, a healthy fear that we don't want to have any separation in our lives between us and the Father. Jesus said, this is no time to be carousing with drunkenness and the cares of this world and, 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 and you know, things that are outside the will of God. To be close to God, to be ready for the return of God. Get your lives ready. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to have the worship team um, fire up here in a second. And 
we're going to invite you guys to come up. And so um, it's one song. So I just encourage everybody, please stay. When the song is over, we'll be done for the day. Close us in prayer and we'll be done for the day. We're going to invite you to take the, the communion back to your seat and spend um, one song talking to God, connecting with the Lord, allowing God to speak to you. Maybe there's something in your heart that, um, go ahead, Katie. Maybe there's something in your heart that, um, that, that you want to deal with, you want to see God deal with in your life, that maybe you need to get right with the Lord. Maybe you don't know if you're a believer in Jesus. Maybe you don't know when you die if you're going to go to heaven or not. And, and, and you know what? We, we can lead you in a sinner's prayer and we could do other things. But really, magic just happens. If you say yes to Jesus, God's going to honor that. And during this, during this communion, if you want to get right with God, just tell him, hey, I want to get right with you. I want to confess my sins. I realize I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I want God in my life. And I want to give 100% of my life to God. God, God unfortunately, he's not going to accept 80%, 90%, 50%. And I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to give up these, these areas of my life. God's not going to accept that. You've got you to be willing to give it all. You've got to be willing to say, God, here I am. Take all of my life. And, it, and if your heart is in that place today, if the Spirit of God has called you, I want you to respond to that. And as we take communion, you spend that time with the Lord. If you're a believer in here, pray. Pray for others. Pray for yourself. And ask God if there's something in your life, in your heart, that God wants to speak to you about this morning. And then one of the skills that we really got to get better at as believers, myself included, right, is, is listening during prayer and worship. And maybe you just listen during this time and say, God, because God can speak, man. If you'll give God opportunity, I promise God will push something on your heart and your mind in love and, and in clarity, and you'll know God is telling you something. Respond to whatever it is God's telling you, amen? Amen. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this communion we're about to receive. We thank you, Father, for the, body, the bread that represents your body that was broken for us. We thank you, Father, for the, the cup which represents the blood that was shed for us. And Jesus, we do this in remembrance of you. And God, we, we want to get our hearts right, too. Lord, we want to come to you. We don't want to have separation between us and the Father. We don't want there to be anything that clouds, Lord God, our relationship. So God, take those things, remove those things relationally. And God, if we receive Jesus, Lord, we ask that you, Jesus, would, would forgive us of our sins and wash us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God that's so powerful, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you for the amazing, tremendous price that caused you to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, I thank you personally for every step you took down the Via Dolorosa as you carried that cross. And the Roman soldiers kicked you, Lord. They beat you, Jesus. And because you love me, because you love us, Jesus, you, you walked and you carried it until you couldn't take another step. Jesus, we, we remember that day. It's a day in history that's real. God, we do this in remembrance of that day and that moment. Jesus, we thank you that you'll never be that way again. But this time, God, when you come back, you're going to come back as a lion who was victorious. You're going to come back as a king of kings and a lord of lords. And that the victory is yours. And we thank you that on that day, you defeated sin and death. You conquered death for our sakes, Jesus that you humbled yourself and you experienced and went through something so terrible so that you would build relationship and opportunity for each one of us to respond and to know you and to walk with you. And Lord, we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name.